Kristen Olson is the author of Sweet in Toots and Claw, Stories of Generosity and Cooperation in the Natural World. Her other books include The Soil Will Save Us, How Scientists, Farmers, and Foodies Are Healing the Soil to Save the Planet, and Cobble Beauty School, An American Woman Goes Behind the Veil. Olson appears in the award-winning documentary film Kiss the Ground, speaking about the connection between soil and climate health. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Smithsonian, Discover, New Scientist, Orion, American Archaeology, and has also been anthologized in Best American Science Writing and Best American Food Writing. Kristen Olson, welcome to the One Planet Podcast. Hi, great to be here. And so we've been so enjoying your body of work and your latest book, Sweet and Tooth and Claw. And you're going to share a passage with us, these stories of generosity and cooperation in the natural world. Yes, I am. I selected something that's from the very beginning of the book. I'm naturally drawn to optimism, which is a gift from my sweet father. I actually worried that I might just be soft-headed until I read this quote from activist and Professor Angela Davis. I don't think we have any alternative other than remaining optimistic. Optimism is an absolute necessity, even if it's only optimism of the will and pessimism of the intellect, she said. But it's hard to hang on to optimism. Like others, probably you, I panic at the growing, undeniable evidence of humanity's damage to the natural world around us. And fear we'll never get our shit together to do anything about it as our politics and cultures continue to clash in the nastiest of ways. When I wrote my previous book, The Soil Will Save Us, I discovered a wellspring of optimism as I met farmers, ranchers, scientists, and others figuring out how to restore damaged agricultural landscapes. But if the world is characterized by greed and grasping and selfishness, and so many people believe, would the growing numbers of ordinary ecological heroes be enough? Then I heard Canadian forest ecologist Suzanne Samard speak. For the last 30 years, she's been uncovering the hidden cooperation among trees and other living things in the forest. In the process of writing The Soil Will Save Us, my last book, I was thrilled to learn about the life-giving partnership between plants and soil microorganisms. Really, it was the greatest of revelations to find out that plants don't just suck nutrients from the soil and leave it as barren of goodness as a Twinkie but are engaged in a constant give and take with the billions of tiny organisms there. At the conference, Samard talked about this kind of fertile partnership spread out across the forest landscape, powered by a vast underground skein of fungi. I nearly levitated from my seat with excitement. I drove from Portland to Vancouver that year to talk to Samard and her students, but it took a few years to find other researchers and landscapes yielding similar insights. As they accrued, I felt as if I was really onto something worth writing about. Most of us have forgotten much of what we learned in science class, but a few concepts persevere, and survival of the fittest is certainly one of them. Charles Darwin posited that the species we see around us today are the winners of a challenge that's been going on for nearly 4 billion years. All living things are the culmination of changes passed on from ancient forebears that made them more successful at harvesting resources, avoiding predation and other dangers, and reproducing. Other thinkers pounced on Darwin's findings and enshrined the concept of competition as biology's brutal architect. The idea that competition rules has been lodged in our collective brains ever since. Even if people reject theory of evolution or can't quite recall how it works, they still think of nature as red in tooth and claw, as the poet Tennyson wailed. 
a vicious and never-ending battle of survival for meager resources. Even many scientists don't grasp how pervasive cooperative interactions are in nature. Today's ecologists grew up with the paradigm of organisms primarily competing with each other, biologist Richard Carbon told me. A lot of ecologists are surprised by how much cooperation exists among plants and other organisms. They're not looking for it in their research, he said. Consequently, we seem to have developed a zero-sum game view of nature, suggesting that whatever we take, we humans or those ravens, cypresses, invasive garlic mustard, or any living thing, comes at the expense of other living things and the overall shared environment. As we humans keep growing in number, this view suggests, it must regrettably follow that the rest of the world will suffer. But what if we're applying Darwin's insights wrongly to the world and thus missing the generosity and cooperation that exist in the natural world? That's what Samard's research suggested to me. And if we are missing the generosity and cooperation in the greater world, we are also likely missing these harmonious connections in ourselves. Because we are part of nature, of course. We exist because of complex, vibrant, creative relationships with the rest of nature and are as much a part of it as the raccoon lounging in the tree near my front door or the grasses growing along the highway. How might our behavior change if we understood the extent to which cooperation within and among species undergirds the natural world and makes it thrive? If we looked for that cooperation, could we begin to see ourselves as partners and helpers, part of a greater fabric of giving instead of exploiters and colonizers and wreckers? Oh, what an important message. And I am glad that you appreciate the work of Suzanne Simard. We know her work well in the Mother Tree Project. And really, you highlight what is so important. Many of us are just coming around to understand that it's not really the fittest individual that survives. It's that collective adaptive intelligence. And in some ways, our insistence on dominating is actually destroying us. It definitely is destroying us. It definitely destroys ecosystems. And I think, you know, part of the reason that this story of cooperation among living things appeals to me so much, I mean, in my book, Sweet and Tooth and Claw, I look at the work of lots of scientists who are sort of studying how nature works and discovering all these incredible connections among living things that certainly help them thrive and help ecosystems thrive. But I think it's this story of cooperation is important in terms of the story that we tell ourselves about nature and seeing as how we are part of nature, you know, that it's important that we see ourselves as possibly a partner instead of a destroyer. I think that we have held on to the perspective that nature is all about competition and conflict. And when we shift that, when we look at nature as this vast web of interconnection and cooperation, and of course, competition and conflict in there, obviously, in some places, but when we look at this vast web of cooperation and collaboration, I think that it changes our view. It changes our view of what's possible, you know, instead of us trying to make order out of chaos, largely out of the chaos that we've created we can instead look at the world as being held together and look for the places where the connections have been snapped, where the connections have been broken, and when, where we can roll back some of the damage 
we've done and help those connections heal. And just going back, I know that this book really grew out of your previous book, The Soil Will Save Us. But just even looking at that, the earth that we walk on, I believe that a handful of soil contains more organisms than there are people on earth. Right. Um, and to think that the way we've degraded it and denaturized it and as though it was a battle. And, and now we're understanding we're damaging our health and the planet. Just tell us a little bit of how this is really a continuation of what you started with The Soil Will Save Us. Oh, it's absolutely a continuation from The Soil Will Save Us. I feel so lucky to write about this material about the scientists who are doing the research into how nature works and the people working on the land who are discovering how nature heals. So when I wrote The Soil Will Save Us, one of the really pivotal moments for me was when I was sitting at a table one night trying to make sense out of all these notes that I had. And all of a sudden it just struck me. And I said, oh, plants aren't just takers because the way farmers are approached by all the agrochemical companies that want to sell them products and services, farmers are always told that plants, when they're growing, they just suck up all these nutrients out of the ground and they leave nothing behind so that if farmers want to have a good crop, they have to rush in there with these chemicals to replace the mineral nutrients that the plants have taken out of the soil. That's only a little bit of the story, that plants are also givers. So I think all of us learn about photosynthesis, about plants using their leaves to gather uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and they convert that carbon fuel, a carbon-based syrup that they use to grow branches and leaves and flowers and roots. And in the process, they release oxygen. But it's, it's only part of the story. The other part is that plants aren't just doing it for themselves. They are sharing like 50% or more of that carbon fuel that they've created through their roots to that vast underground community of soil microorganisms. So there's this give and take. There's marvelous mutualism that's going on there. And so learning about that in the last book was such an important moment for me to see all these plants as not just individual living things, but these incredible ecosystems. And knowing that, I wanted to learn more about mutualism, which is the mutually beneficial relationship between one or more species. So that kind of, yes, I'm stepping off of the last book into this book. It's really wonderful that we are part of nature and we're part of the natural world and the non-human forms of life. There is this wonderful lack of waste. Dead material becomes fuel for another. And it's really ingenious. And you illuminate these different mutualistic relationships. One of the things that was so interesting was talking to some of the researchers who are studying mutualisms among flowering plants and bees and other pollinators, but mostly in this one case, they were both bees and they were studying a fun thing called cheating, where some bees buzzing around and the plants have made a nectar that's in their flowers to entice the bees to come and visit. And the bees come to take some nectar and to take a little bit of pollen. And in the process, they get covered with pollen and then they go off to other flowers searching for more nectar and they distribute that pollen. So they're fertilizing other plants. But one of the researchers was studying why some bees, instead of going in through the top, they chew a hole in the bottom of the flower and they come in that way to get the nectar and they're not getting covered with pollen and they're not 
conducting that third-party meeting. But what's really interesting is that plants seem to be okay with producing an overabundance of nectar. Even bees that don't perform their part in the mutualism can partake in that feast. So it's one of those lovely puzzles about generosity that exists in nature. It's not just a strict accounting all the time. On the topic of sort of this lack of waste and how in the documentary Kiss the Ground, you're featured in it and you talk about everything in nature that's being put in and taken out is important and cyclical. These vast amounts of microbes that cattle put into the soil. So, you know, why are these microbes important and how is that important in sustainable farming? What is that adding to the soil? Well, you know, cattle, a lot of farmers refer to them as fermentation tanks. They're sort of like using microbes to dissolve the food that they've eaten in their waste. And the waste of any living creature is just full of microbes. So um, when cattle go over the land, when rabbits travel over the land, when birds fly over the land and uh, excrete, all that stuff is going down and adding to the microbial feast that's already in the soil, on the plant. Um, It's just, it's recycling a lot of the microbes Yes, what we really have begun to appreciate what the ruminants do, and we're just kind of relearning what we thought, and then now we're going back to regenerative agriculture, because apparently we don't need to use as much water. Our soils, which are being degraded, and these statistics at 0.3% a year, but that's 30% over 100 years, we need to really return to those farming practices. And you've spoken to many farmers and others. People thought it was complicated to adapt those systems. And I think it is in a sense, but we just don't have those unlimited resources. We don't have those unlimited resources. And when I think so many farmers, the non-massive corporate farmers, so many farmers live precarious lives and it's hard to take chances. It's hard to try new things, although I think they do all the time. I was just rereading a chapter in The Soil Will Save Us and looking at all the experimentation the farmer that I profiled there, Gabe Brown, did. He would try some fields with fertilizer and other fields without, and he would try some fields with these really elaborate combinations of cover crops and other fields with simpler combinations of cover crops. So I think farmers are naturally kind of innovative and responsive to changes in weather and changes in animal life and all that. I think the problem so often is that our farming policy, the structures that support farmers and that support agriculture are not supporting that innovation and are not supporting the efforts of farmers to create food, healthy food and create profits for themselves and preserve the land. You know, the structures that exist, certainly in this country, have for the last 50 years or whatever, really supported agriculture that was not trying to, not focused on healthy food, not focused on healthy landscapes, only focused on bigger profits. Exactly. And what you write about, these partnerships, these mutualisms, it's not just the soil and the product and the monocultures. It's rethinking and how farmers or how we can really live and work with the animals. And then that saves the land. And it also, as it turns out, means we'll have fewer diseases. Yeah. Yeah. So many of the farmers, when they start to change their farming, they see the results in their animals, that their animals need fewer antibiotics and fewer visits from the veterinarian. And I think, of course, that kind of healthier landscape, starting from the bottom, has got to inform 
our own bodies has got to change the many inflammatory illnesses and all that we get from this agricultural system that produces very poor crops. And I know that Maureen is interested in asking more of those questions around forests and, and the relationships. We need them. Obviously, they're the lungs of the planet as well. So in Sweetened Tooth and Claw, you talk about clear cutting and how really detrimental it is as a logging practice to big swaths of forests and how you say it releases big pulses of carbon into the atmosphere. But what are alternatives to clear cutting? And is there a more sustainable way to harvest? Well, Suzanne Savard's Mother Tree Project is looking at coming up with more sustainable ways to harvest in forests. She's looking at harvesting that preserves more of the relationships that are holding the forest together. So she's focusing on those mother trees, which are the biggest, oldest trees that are there. And it turns out that they have more relationships and connections to the other trees in the forest. One of the pieces of research her lab did was to look at this one particular kind of fungi that only is connected to older trees. So the trees in a forest are connected by this incredibly massive network of fungi. But like all trees aren't the same. Some of the fungi do different things. So this one particular fungi that is only connected connected to the older trees. It's very good at shuttling water around. So then you could reimagine how you harvest in a forest instead of taking out every single tree or instead of taking out everything but the small trees that aren't really commercially valuable anyway, you could leave the mother tree and some other trees there so that at least those underground connections are being more preserved and that the forest can regenerate possibly more quickly if those relationships are maintained. It's very hard for those of us who are concerned about the planet to want to see any kind of timber harvesting, and certainly not in the virgin forests. But in a lot of those tree plantations or in forests that are harvested over and over again, like where she was doing her mother tree work when I was with her was in a forest that had been harvested 80 years ago. So it wasn't exactly a virgin forest, although it felt like it to me. But, you know, I think that on balance, the less cutting we do in a forest, the better the planet will be. We need those dense networks of greenery and all the habitat that they offer. What's so beautiful I found about that and speaking with her about her projects is that the trees, you would think because they're static, that if there was a mutualistic relationship, it would just be with their immediate family. Uh, but actually, the, these networks extend for great distances beyond what we think their the clan, if you can speak about it this way in, in human terms. And so it's quite wonderful, this constant giving yeah. And I love how some people are taking that idea of those connections that happen in the forest to regenerate past forests. So I did write about a young researcher who's trying to come up with a way to regenerate an area that had been ruined by a mine disaster where the mine tailings had spilled and sort of wrecked this landscape. And so they're testing to see whether a handful of forest soil with all the sort of the legacy of the things that lived in that soil to see if that forest soil can help new little seeded trees grow better, you know, and start to revegetate that area that had been ruined. And I've seen since then that idea of taking the handful of the soil of the landscape that you want to restore this other landscape. So it's like this the one in the forest or the one in the prairie, taking some of that soil that has the seeds of the partnership 
to help that thriving begin. Yeah, I don't want to emphasize the, the tragedy of how we are killing our soil, but it takes in years, I believe, to produce just two to three centimeters of topsoil. And the way we are just degrading it, it's devastating. Anecdotally, talk to some of the farmers who are working in regenerative ways on the land, and they are changing very bad soil into very good soil through these practices. You know, it's those microbes that are in the soil that are that are creating, that are turning it into, you know, turning dirt into soil. I think there's ways to accelerate it because David Montgomery and his wife, Anne Bigclay, were able to create healthy soil from quite a degraded soil quickly. And I'm wondering what that means over vast patches of land or in some, or if you're just allowing it to develop on its own. So obviously there, there's accelerants. It's not such a lost cause. But to bring it back to forests and how you were talking about these, uh, the importance of vast networks in these old forests. Just from personal experience, I'm from the Northeast of the United States. And in the last 100, 200 years, our forests have changed dramatically. And you don't really have hardly any old growth forests in the Northeast anymore. And we're losing species of tree, like like one by one, you've lost more or less the American chestnut and the Dutch elm and now ash trees. And I was wondering how these large-scale die-outs of these really old trees are changing the forest ecosystems and these interconnected systems like you were talking about. I think those are tragic losses. When we look at things on a human scale, those losses are terrifying. But I'm not sure if on a longer time scale we won't see some of those species come back because trees do develop resistance to some of the things that are striking them down now. And forests live for a long time. And I'm sure that, you know, the balance of species within them changes. So that's my hope. Yes. I mean, there are some quite ambitious seeding programs, preserving the seeds and on terraformation is aiming for something like a plant a trillion trees. So I, there are some people who are trying to apply technologies not to lose some of right. those. And I hope that they can get a fraction of what their ambitious aims are. So yes, as I know you're optimistic, as it's the beginning note of your book, and as you shared with us, I guess a thesis of your book is what we learn from the natural world and animals and how we can bring it back into our lives so that our planet and we can thrive and adopt some of these more cooperative relationships. In the writing of your book, what are some of those relationships of reciprocity that you feel that we could adapt and learn from to bring them back? Have you interviewed Robin Wall Kimmerer? We haven't done, we are in touch with her. I know you wrote about her. I honestly look a lot when I think about how humans should behave in the world and live in a respectful way with the rest of nature. I really, I love her principles for how to do that, about not taking the first and the last and having an honorable purpose. And she's distilling wisdom from indigenous traditions that go back thousands and thousands of years. So I really look to those about being humble and being generous and being kind and and not taking too much and not overwhelming the natural world with our needs and trying to scale down the size of our needs. And you say that we need better metaphors. That's going back to this, not looking to this model of Darwinism, but reshaping our thinking about the natural world. I think it's really 
interesting how we humans are a massively cooperative species. And that's why we dominate the world to the extent that we do. We just, we're very good at working together. And stories, metaphors are a lot of what drives us to work together, that drives us towards goals. So that's why I thought it was very important to push against the metaphors that have informed so much of our culture for the last couple of hundred years. So have the idea of survival of the fittest, not directly from Darwin, argued that the growing human population would outstrip the Earth's resources and there would inevitably be deaths and weakness in parts of the population. And that that was kind of that was kind of a good thing because it would balance out society. You know, we would lose the weakest members. And Darwin had read Malthus and took that idea of progress through struggle and the weeding out of weaker members by the harsh exigencies of nature. And that was how he came up with his theory of natural selection, you know, that the fossil records showed that certain animals and plants, living things, could not survive in given the circumstances. And then it was Herbert Spencer who read Darwin and who came up with the line, survival of the fittest. Those are phrases that have stuck with our society and I think our thinking about how nature works and how we work. So those are phrases that came out of science that affect the culture. And the culture, of course, affects science in terms of what we push science to ask for, what we tell science we want to know about the world. And I'm hoping that the new crop of scientists who are looking at all of these cooperative relations among living things, how that holds together ecosystems, how that determines how species can survive that that new crop of scientists will inform and reform the metaphors that we use, the stories that we tell ourselves about how nature works, how we work, how the culture works. That's what I'm hoping will happen. Yes, because you see that those metaphors really reverberate not just in terms of land management or how we manage our natural resources. They're adapted into the capitalist system, you know where it's short-term thinking or people think within quarters and this extractivist thinking. So it's not just about the land, but you extract as much wealth or, you know, labor. And as I appreciate in your book, I don't know if this might be too much to say, but it seems like the natural world bends a little bit more towards socialism. (laughs) That's grasping at it, but it, it appears one that's a little bit more enlightened, mutualistic and cooperative. I like to think that way. And tell us, what was your childhood like and when did you decide to become a writer? My childhood was certainly a lot less, you know, they talk now about helicopter parents and parents who are sort of shuttling their kids off from one activity to another and making sure that they never fail at anything. And, you know, and I had parents that were of a different ill. So they were busy and there were illnesses and there were various reasons, but they were not terribly hands-on which was a kind of great thing. I mean, they gave me lots of books to read. So I was a big reader when I was a kid, but it was back in the area where kids were naturally free range. Everybody sort of ran around the neighborhood and ran around in vacant lots. People kept horses not far from my house and the kids in the neighborhood used to just run around there all the time. And even though there were plenty of opportunities for us to hurt ourselves, it was a big cliff to fall off of and there, were, there was the opportunity to get kicked by the horses. And I spent a lot of time sort of puttering around outside with myself and with other kids. And 
you know, honestly, one of the things that I loved to do when I was by myself was there was a, a vacant lot that was just full of these ant mounds. And so the whole field was sort of had all these ant trails just constantly busy. And I would just sit there for hours as a kid and I would bring handfuls of sugar and handfuls of breadcrumbs and drop them and watch the ants move them around. And sometimes I would put obstacle, you know, drop sticks in front of the ant trails to see how they would get together to move things. So I was really very interested in things like that and became a writer, sort of began to think of myself as a writer when I got to college and I started writing for the college newspaper and things like that. And writing always felt really good to me. You know, it was a way to crystallize things that I had thought about. The struggle to go from something that you sort of vaguely understand to putting it in words. It is a, you know, you always have an idea in your head. And when you go to put it down on paper, it's so elusive. You really have to concentrate all your powers on putting it down in a way that somebody else is going to want to read it and can understand it. So I've always really liked that process. And as my career has gone on, it's just been, for a long time, it was a career in which I interviewed a lot of people. And I sort of specifically sought topics that I didn't know anything about because it was, that was always a really exciting intellectual journey for me to go from knowing nothing about something to knowing enough about it to write about it. And, you know, you're in an incredibly privileged position as a writer because you get to ask people just question after question, people who are doing really important work. So I loved that. People who are doing important work or groups like your earlier book at the Kabul Beauty School, where a kind of community that people would not necessarily have access to. Yeah. And also, I think I've always loved telling the stories of ordinary people, too, not just important people doing important work, but ordinary people who are often doing important work that nobody knows about. So I really love going down that lane, too, of understanding what some of these farmers are doing that are just so creative and so important and so overlooked. So I have really liked that as part of my career, too. Yes, with COP27 upon us and a lot of people feel a lot of stasis and they're obviously every year we're kind of like edging towards progress, but the farmers are doing that daily work and it's creating communities and I mean, it depends on how they practice their farming. There's destructive farming, of course, but I've always loved speaking to farmers as well because there's not... It connects with so many other aspects of society without realizing it. It's just, it's really a, a network, right? Yeah. And Maureen, I think you had further questions about this because Maureen grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Having grown up on a farm and having seen sort of these mutualistic relationships, my uncle's a beekeeper. And growing up, my parents always told me that if I like had honey every day that I wouldn't develop like seasonal allergies. And, you know, that always like blew my mind. But then I moved away for college and stopped eating honey. And the first summer that I came back, my allergies were crazy. And they were like, see, it's the honey. You have to eat the local honey because, you know, that's it's a little that it comes from the pollen and that's a little taste of your entire ecosystem that's around you. 
I love that idea. When you hear about things like that, and I kind of wish that's the kind of thing that scientists would spend more time studying is, you know, what does that local honey do? But it makes complete sense. You know, bees forage for something like, what, six miles, and they are bringing to their hive all the microbes and metabolites from plants. They're bringing all that stuff back to the hive and sort of churning it up into the honey. It makes sense to me. And when I go and eat, so I started having a breakfast that probably seems weird to a lot of people, but it was because of the first year when I started growing a little garden in my backyard here, I think I must have dropped the whole package of arugula seeds. Anyway, I had more arugula than I could possibly eat. And I was giving away bagfuls. And so I started thinking, well, how am I going to eat all this? So I started eating it every morning for breakfast. So it became a habit. So every morning I start off my daily meal with a bunch of greens from my garden. So with arugula and kale and collards and beet greens and things like that. And that's my breakfast. And I so feel it is like a grounding in the microbial life of this area, eating that stuff every morning. You know, I don't wash it. I just eat it. I think that whether it's taking a teaspoon of local honey in your tea every night or whether it's eating some unwashed produce from your garden, there is something really important that's still very prevalent in rural thought and these sort of rural oral traditions that a lot of us who live in urban and suburban communities have totally lost. I grew up on a farm and at least In my family, we have this tradition where when there's a new baby born, it's not really a party, but sort of everyone comes to see the baby do their first little tour of the farm. And you let the baby pet a cow and you let the baby play in the hay and you let the baby touch a pig. The idea behind this is that you're introducing your baby to all these germs while they're young so that when they get older, they're not going to have any kind of reactions. And... Of course, you know, I did this when I was born, and I still get hay fever every year. So there is an element to these oral traditions that I'm sure is just old wives' tales, but I think some of it is really important too. And if so, I think it's really grounding to have that sort of exposure to your environment and to all the organisms that are running every aspect of the ecosystem that you're living in. And now, back to the podcast. And you've written about going back to these practices of regenerative agriculture or questioning certain elements of science that is about creating products and extracting things from nature. It's interesting because we've had some conversations with like synthetic biologists or people who study and consider the possibilities for conservation of synthetic biology. So it's a certain line that you have to consider because some people say that synthetic biology can actually help us conserve certain species of plants and animals. And I wonder what your reflections on this are. I'm sure that there are some technologies and approaches that I don't embrace that might have some that might have some possibilities that might be useful. But really, every time I hear about this stuff, I always think, but wait, what have we tried first? Have we tried first regenerating landscapes? Have we tried first removing the damage that we're doing as humans to those landscapes? And and I think in almost most cases, it's not the case. You know, if we could only invest the money that goes into GMO development and the massive amount of money that go into some of the biotech and technologies into bringing back landscapes, restoring landscapes, restoring the right relationships that exist among living things. I think that we wouldn't need these really expensive interventions. 
but think a lot of people just don't understand how quickly nature can regenerate and the, the complexity of what goes on in nature. Yeah, to redesign it without completely understanding it. We do have this technophilia. I have heard positive things things on the side of it, not just the GM, that others. So it makes me know that I, it just makes me aware that these things are happening. And I guess we have to at least understand what's being done anyway in the sweet and tooth and claw. How were you transformed in the writing of the book? Well, I think that my view of nature was just so enriched by knowing, you know, all these complex levels at which things work together. And for me, then it went just beyond the understanding that we ourselves, humans and all animals and all plants and all fungi, are made from cells that developed billions of years ago. So the first cells in nature were single-celled organisms. And then by a mutualism, by one of those single-celled organisms absorbing another, consuming but not eating another. So they became one living inside the other, kind of like coral. You know, coral is a little tiny animal that has a little tiny alga living inside it. So those new cells that were formed from that act of cooperation became the basis for all multicellular life. So I mean, just even knowing that, that from the cell up, all of living things, except for single-celled organisms, all living things are made from cooperation. So that's just a different view of our history as organisms. But for me, the concept went even farther. What is the cooperative relationship between land and water? You know, how do we treat our waters so that they can cooperate with the land? You know, mostly... Humans have this, we have this obsession for straightening out waterways, for making them easy to, easy for our boats to get down and separating them from the nat natural environment by putting concrete sides on them and just having them rush through landscapes and sometimes culverting them, you know, hiding them with pipes and because they're just too much bothered to have all that water in a city or something like that. So that was another one of these concepts about cooperation, how water and land cooperate, how do the things that live in the water and the things that live on the land cooperate? How do we bring them together? What benefits does that bring about? That was a very exciting and mind-expanding moment for me when I started to work with that material. And it's reflect on water because we're talking about resource management. I know you probably don't like those terms because it seems like and as you say, harnessing things. But with soil, we can appreciate and understand that we need those organisms. But for us, the, a lot of the organisms in the water like might aren't safe and we treat them. Do you have a different perspectives on treating water so that it's drinkable? For me personally, I've always been a little sloppy about water that I drink. I mean, I don't, I never drink out of those plastic bottles. So I figure that most cities are doing a decent enough job with water. It's something that's far beyond me personally in terms of drinking water. I'm I'm just really interested in how people can improve landscapes so that our water and our land interact in the way that they should. So I had that whole chapter about the ranchers in Nevada, which is, you know, one of the chapters of the book that was just, God, such a pleasure to write. So it was in eastern Nevada, which is an exceptionally dry part of the country. And, and there are ranchers there. And everybody wants a piece of these tiny little creeks that go through the landscape that dry up, or at least when this project started, that dry up in the middle of every summer because, you know, it gets hotter and 
water just disappears. And these creeks are the habitat of a local trout. And so these ranchers were approached 15 years ago by government scientists and government agency people to try to change their grazing, the way they graze their cattle, so that perhaps these creeks could get a little healthier and they would be better habitat for the trout. So the ranchers were of course, dismayed by this request because nobody likes to be told that they need to change and nobody wants somebody else telling them how to do their job, but because they have to maintain decent relationships with these government agencies, they said that they would give it a try. So the plan was to fence off the creek so that for part of the year, the cattle couldn't get to them. And the cattle, of course, wanted to hang out by the creeks because there was not only water, but it was cooler there. But when they were at the creeks too much, their hooves would, they would not only eat the vegetation along the creeks, but their hooves would sink down and break the roots of the plants that could grow there. So the ranchers were asked to fence the creeks so that the cattle could go there less frequently. And after doing this for a while, there started to be this really marvelous by the rest of nature. The mud that was along the creeks, of course, it holds seeds because probably some of them can live in the soil for decades or sometimes even hundreds of years. So there were seeds there that started to sprout and vegetation started to grow along these creeks. And the ranchers were very pleased. They said, okay, look, we've done our part. And then the beaver showed up. So when the beaver showed up, the ranchers were dismayed again because they usually shoot beaver because beavers come in and screw up their irrigation systems and all that. So the scientists and the government agencies told them, well, let's just see what happens. So the beavers started building their dams and ponds started to form behind, beyond the, behind the dams and the water started to just reach out into the landscape and it you know, every year it reached out farther into the landscape and the vegetation that had started to grow there expanded and expanded. And it wound up turning this area that had, it was very, very dry and had these tiny little creeks into something that's much more like wetlands. So beneficial for the ranchers, not only because there's like forage, there's grasses and things for their cattle to eat that are far away from the creeks. And beneficial because it makes the area less flammable. It's an area that's so dry that they always have to worry about fire. But the creeks, the result is also something that would make any environmentalist thrilled because as the water reaches out into the land, as the creeks start to develop oxbows and little quirks in their stream shape, in their configuration, the landscape becomes one that so many more birds, so many more insects. It becomes habitat for all these other creatures. And it has gotten to the point there where the actual water table of the land has changed. And it's changed so much that there's enough water that's in the land that those creeks never dry out anymore. I mean, they run throughout the summer, and which was something that nobody in living memory had seen. So it was a really dramatic impact on the land that these people effected because they understood the human damage that was there and rolled that damage back. But it's also just such a great story because the scientists and the agency officials and the ranchers 
realized that to make this work, they had to work together in a new way. So they started organizations where they meet frequently and they meet in these rooms where they sit around tables that are sort of rounded. So nobody sits at the head of the table. Everybody is sort of equal. You know, the scientists aren't in a more exalted position than they have all these practices that they do in the process of having these meetings to make sure everybody has a voice and nobody's opinion is disparaged. And they even have a social worker who's trained in consensus there to help them if there are difficult issues that come up. So that was an example of healing in so many ways. Yeah, it's also is a great argument for like just doing less and just doing just enough, which nature, the natural world seems to know a lot better than us. And I guess it's on my mind a lot just because of COP27 and these repeated conferences. And I always think, what if there was an alternative COP conference held by the animals in the natural world? I think that they're probably having it all the time. And I'm thinking, that's a wonderful idea. (laughs) The beaver showing up and transforming the land like that was a surprise. Yeah, it's very beautiful. I mean, because it's this kind of principle also of not hoarding, like we have this hoarding instinct. I don't know how we're going to train ourselves not to think in that way and not to live in buildings and not to accumulate these things. But you've opened our eyes to many cooperations in the natural world and how we can be more respective of the planet that we live in. And so as you reflect on the future and the kind of childhood you had and the teachers that inspired you to embark on this career writing, you know, what were some of those important teachers for you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? You know, I think that some of my most important teachers were just people who sought to show me fascinating things that I would have otherwise missed, you know, to show me how mushrooms come up in a certain area after it rains. And I think that, you know, those of us who are worried about the state of the world, I honestly think that's everybody, even if people don't express that in the same way. You know, I hear a lot of people say how sorry they are for children, you know, for the world that they're going to inhabit. But on the other hand, I think that I'm very excited for some of what the children are going to get. You know, here in the Western United States, there is a big movement to remove dams from rivers to restore those watersheds. You know, that wasn't something that anybody in my youth ever talked about. The people in my youth were only convinced that that technology and development were the path to progress. And I think that the children now can learn a different view. They can learn that that undeveloping can be path to a healthier future. They can learn the complexity of nature. I mean, when, again, back when I was a child, people did not think there was any intelligence in animals. They thought that dogs were this reward and punishment machine. Listening to a podcast with Jane Goodall a couple of days ago, and the person who was interviewing her asked if she had learned of the intelligence of animals by studying chimpanzees. And she said, no, I knew that from my dog when I was seven years old. So I think that there is a completely different story that children now are being taught about the world of animals. Can't help but think that the new view from science of the intelligence 
of nature and the intelligence among animals is going to make the children who are coming up now make better decisions and understand their place in the natural world better than we ever did. Oh, I agree. I, we encounter so many. Maureen is one of them, but also younger students who are just the sense of commitment, the idea that climate science is something that they're even learning to a degree in K-12. And this taking it very seriously and not taking it for granted, the balance of nature in this world that we live in. So I couldn't agree more. And thank you, Kristen Olson, for your work. And that brings us these stories of generosity in the natural world, fusing scientific understanding and emotional connection so that we can appreciate the soil that gives us life and live in harmony with this earth and the animals we share it with. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thank you. The One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Maury Knoll with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Maury Knoll. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.